0: For most of my life, when I or anyone that I knew picked up one of the four Gospels, we did so with the mindset that we were simply picking up one of four historical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's what the Gospels were, historical accounts, nothing more, nothing less, testimonials to what had happened. And we had four of them, which I used to think was pretty good not only because we had more than one account, but also because we had managed to preserve them for 2,000 years. To be sure, these four Gospels didn't always contain the same stories, and they didn't always agree on the details, but that's just how it goes, right? If four people witness the same event, any event, and then recount the details of that event, we will get four different perspectives with four different sets of details. I mean, that's how I approached the Gospels. That's how I handled them as four eyewitness eyewitness accounts that were there to provide me the best historical details of Jesus. Except, then I learned that these four Gospels were written anywhere from 35 to 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and that the Gospels of Mark and Luke were not written by eyewitnesses, And that the four Gospels we have were actually chosen from over 50 Gospels about Jesus. And needless to say, the way that I looked at Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke began to shift. After all, if recording history was the only point, why would the writers wait three, four, or five decades before writing? If if the Gospels were primarily historical accounts, Why would we want historical accounts from people who weren't there to witness the history? And if the only point of these Gospels was to preserve the history of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then why wouldn't we choose all 50-plus Gospels? Why only these four? For most of my life, I never asked questions like that. I never asked questions about the context of, of the Gospels. Meaning, I never even asked questions like, when did Matthew write his Gospel? Or, where did Luke write his Gospel? Or, who was the original audience for the Gospel of Mark? Or, what was going on in the ancient Near East when the Gospel of John first hit the streets? And it's strange that I didn't ask those questions, because those are questions I was taught to ask for most of the other writings in the Bible. Anytime anyone ever taught me a lesson of one, one of Paul's letters, it always included context. Before I learned anything about Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, teachers would inevitably tell me something about first century Corinth, or that Paul wrote the letter on his second missionary journey around the year 50. I could even get background on what was going on in the church in Corinth, and why Paul was choosing to address certain topics in his letter. Same was true when I picked up one of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. I could easily find out when and where the prophet Jeremiah lived and what was going on in his world, all of which helped me to grapple with what was written in the book of Jeremiah. For some reason, when I picked up books like Jeremiah or 1 Corinthians, I was encouraged and instructed to wrestle with the context, to see the whole picture, to better understand what was written by better understanding the writer. And their world. Why wasn't I doing that with the Gospels? Why treat them differently? The Gospel portion with which we are wrestling today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, a section of scripture commonly known as the Beatitudes. Words I bet that we all recognize. Words like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are words I have heard my entire life. They are part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. They are words that get quoted by us, to us, and at us all the time. As if we're supposed to strive to be meek and poor in spirit so we too can be blessed. In my old way of thinking, these words were just part of a historical account Within the Gospel of Matthew, reporting to me that Jesus gave the greatest sermon ever given, showing me how extraordinary and profound Jesus was as a teacher. But what if there's more going on in these words? What if, like in Jeremiah and 1 Corinthians, there's a context to these words? What if, like every other book in this library that we call the Bible, Matthew's gospel was written to a particular group of people at a particular time, in a particular place, facing a particular set of circumstances. For that matter, where and when was Matthew's gospel even written? Who was the original audience from Matthew's gospel? What was going on in their world when these words were written? And should any of that change how we hear the Beatitudes? Our friend Alexander John Shia, the biblical scholar and author, says not only should the context of Matthew's gospel change how we hear it, but the context is the very reason Matthew's gospel was chosen as one of the four gospels in the Bible. So let's start with where. Where was the gospel of Matthew written? Great Antioch on the Orontes the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire during the first century a city that was about a week's walk due north of Jerusalem in what would now be southern turkey now, this geographic context is important for a number of reasons first because the history of Antioch on the Orontes because of its location Antioch had become a place of escape for the Jewish people Beginning with the Babylonian exile, any time things started to get sketchy in Jerusalem, Antioch on the Orontes was the place to which Jews escaped. Over time, Antioch naturally developed a large Jewish population. And by the first century, Antioch even had a large synagogue that was so significant it was referred to by the Jews as the second temple. In fact, that synagogue in Antioch housed items from Solomon's temple, items with which people had escaped during the Babylonian exile. Now, before we talk about when Matthew's gospel was written, let's briefly talk about the temple. As we just alluded to, King David's son Solomon built the first temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians around 587 BCE. And after the Babylonian exile ended, the Jews eventually rebuilt the temple And a few hundred years later, Herod the Great upgraded and expanded that structure to what the temple was during the times of Jesus and his disciples, as we see here in this model. Now, for thousands of years, the Jewish tradition concerning the location of the temple has been that it was built on Mount Moriah, the mountain to which Abraham traveled to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. Furthermore, the focal point of that temple, known as the Holy of Holies, the tall part there in the center, <clears throat> was, was and is still believed to be the actual spot on Mount Moriah where Abraham built the altar to sacrifice Isaac. Now, the Holy of Holies location is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and according to Jewish tradition, so did the very presence of God. Even today there are observant Jews who will not wander around the ruins of the temple for fear of accidentally wandering into where the Holy of Holies would have been were it still standing. The temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, these were all connected and all central to the Jewish faith. During the first century, Jewish tradition and practice followed a strict ritual of sacrifice in the temple. In fact, in the hour before dawn, every morning, a member of the Jewish priesthood would sacrifice a lamb and scatter its collected blood over the high altar in the temple. Now, it seems a little strange to us, but in first century Jewish consciousness, this was not just a ritual. To their understanding, it was this daily sacrifice that not only preserved their faith, but their covenant with God and their very existence. Let's hold that broader picture for just a moment. The temple was of central importance to the practice and preservation of the Jewish faith. The history of the temple and Jerusalem and the Jewish people was intertwined and inseparable. Their annual feast observances, their high holy days, their daily sacrifices all involved the temple— and its priesthood. In the summer of 70 CE, beginning on the very day of remembrance and mourning for the destruction of the first temple, the Roman army marched into Jerusalem under strict orders from the emperor Vespasian, not to simply destroy the temple, but to bring about the end of the Jewish faith. Their orders were to annihilate the temple and end the biological line of the Jewish priesthood by murdering all of the temple priests and led by Vespasian's son Titus. They followed their orders. Jews who were able to escaped as they had for centuries to great Antioch on the Orontes. But this destruction was different. The temple was completely destroyed, torn down, stone by stone and in its place Rome would erect a pagan temple to the god Jupiter the priests were all murdered the leadership of the priestly cult of the temple and the Sadducees were gone Jerusalem was overthrown and the Jewish faith and people entered into an almost unparalleled time of chaos and uncertainty Accordingly, it should come as no surprise to us that what happened among the Jews in Antioch on the Orontes in the weeks and months that followed was a great theological debate. What caused this destruction? Where was God? What are we going to do now? We have no holy city, we have no temple, we have no priests. We cannot practice our faith in the ways that we always have, in the ways that that our scripture instructs their world had just come apart and they were debating why it had happened and what it meant the debate was framed by four dominant voices or positions four different ways of addressing the questions and bewilderment of the unparalleled and unexpected change which they were now forced to face The first voice was an apocalyptic voice. This position looked at all the death and destruction and declared, This is the end. Our covenant with God is now null and void. It's all over. Prepare for God to bring it all to an end. The second voice was a legalistic voice. The voice of the Pharisees declaring, This is all happening because we have sinned. We have been unfaithful, and we are now being punished. We are reaping what we have sown. We have fallen short, and we must repent, redouble our efforts, and return to an even more faithful practice of our past. The third voice was a practical voice, a voice that looked upon the overwhelming destruction and unmanageable change and resigned. These problems are too big to handle too big to face. We have to focus on the daily problems of food and shelter and security. We can't possibly give this the attention it needs. We just need to survive. The fourth voice to arise in great Antioch on the Orontes was the voice of the Messianic Jews, those Jews who had not only escaped to Antioch but also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The fourth voice in the debate is the voice captured in the Gospel of Matthew, which not only answers our question of when Matthew was written, but also to whom it was written. Matthew's Gospel was written following the destruction of the temple to a battered and confused Jewish remnant that escaped to Antioch, a devastated and grieving people People who were trying to determine not only what happened and why, but what they should do, how they should live now. The fourth voice was a gospel voice. Good news. A voice that declared, there is a way forward. God has not gone away from you. God is not displeased with you. This is not the end the gospel voice invites its audience to awaken to reality that this moment, while terrifying and painful, is nonetheless an invitation. It encourages vigilance and hope and new eyes to see, reminding people that change has always been a part of the cycle of life, that this pain and darkness herald an invitation to a new journey, a new way of being, a new way of seeing things, that is connected to every part of our past. Matthew's gospel even begins with a genealogy that asks its audience to remember that the dilemma of painful change has been part of our DNA going all the way back to Abraham. In addition to genealogical allusions to Abraham, Ruth, and David, Matthew's gospel repeatedly connects Jesus to Moses. It repeatedly connects the gospel story to the story of the Exodus, the most central story in the entire Bible. It's as if there's a heartbeat running through the gospel saying, remember. Remember where you're from. Remember all that God has done. Matthew's gospel is framed in what, have, what would have been obvious ways to its ancient audience To communicate that this Messiah, Jesus, is the anointed and connected invitation to come once again out of slavery, to leave the narrow place and go into the wilderness in a deeper relationship with God. Now hold on to this context. The context of an overwhelmed and reeling community of grieving and terrified survivors. Facing a level of change they do not know how to process. Hearing a story of someone who reminds them of Moses. A story of someone who, like Moses, was threatened with assassination at his birth. A story of someone who, like Moses, escaped to Egypt. Passed through water. Was tested in the wilderness. And who now, like Moses and Mount Sinai ascends the mountain to deliver to the people authoritative instruction on life in the kingdom of God. That is the context in which into which I invite you to listen to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount as is written in the fifth chapter of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, I don't know about you, but when I hear these words in that context, it changes everything. I hear those words differently now. I see those words in an entirely different light. These aren't simple statements or vague prophecies. These pronouncements are not describing general human virtues that we should all pursue These are validations of the pain these people were experiencing. These are promises that that pain will not last forever. These are an invitation to keep going, to face that change, to put one weary foot in front of the other. The revelation of Jesus the Christ in Matthew's gospel speaks directly to the reeling community of Antioch. The audience For these words from the mountain of God, they were poor in spirit. They were mourning. They were meek and hungry and thirsty and persecuted, and they had no evidence nor reason to believe that any of that was going to change. Yet, this Jesus, this rabbi, this fourth voice of the Gospel of Matthew still asks them to consider themselves blessed. To consider the possibility that things are not as they seem. To consider that God has not gone away from them. That God is not displeased with them. And that this darkness is not the end, it's the beginning. My friends, not to get too preachy on you this morning, but we are living evidence that they not only considered the fourth voice, they lived it. We are all here today because this ancient community received that gospel. Within these Beatitudes, their sense of grief was not dulled, deadened, or desensitized. The pain of change is real, and they faced it. Within these Beatitudes lay also the capacity to continue, to carry on, not only to hope, but to know the covenant and king that invited them forward. And they followed him. We are their heirs. So what will we do with this gospel? What do we do with these beatitudes? We're not first century Jews escaping to great Antioch on the Orontes. Our entire religious system Has not been burned to the ground and our priests have not been murdered. Why do these words, these stories, matter to us now? Why have they survived all this time? Is it simply because they are an historical account of the life of Jesus? Or do we too have to face destruction and confusion? and loss and change might we know what it is to be overwhelmed and reeling can we relate to hanging on to life or faith by just our fingertips maybe these beatitudes and the gospel that contains them endure because we too hear the apocalyptic and legalistic And practical voices in our own lives. Maybe we too need the fourth voice, the gospel. Maybe when we hear or ask questions like, Who caused this destruction? Where was God? What are we going to do now? We need good news. In fairness, we may not find ourselves facing an unwanted and seemingly insurmountable change in our lives at this very moment. But we've all been there. And if we're honest, we know we will be there again. The fourth voice of Matthew says, remember. Remember where we're from. Remember all that God has done. When we next stand on the threshold of pain and change and darkness, remember that we do not do so alone. Abraham, Sarah, Ruth, Moses, David, Mary, all of Israel, a cloud of witnesses that face change upon change upon change stands with us. All of them led by our rabbi, our brother, our savior, the fourth voice reminding us that we are blessed and loved and safe even when, especially when, our circumstances tell us otherwise. That fourth voice speaks to us up from the pain of Jerusalem and the remnant in Antioch on the Orontes. It finds us in this time and place, praying that we will know. Blessed are the depressed. Blessed are the bullied. Blessed are the suicidal. For you're not alone. Blessed are the trafficked. Blessed are the imprisoned. Blessed are the addicted. For your eyes will be raised. Blessed are the activists. Blessed are those with special needs. Blessed are those who don't fit in. For you see what others cannot. Blessed are those who live in poverty. Blessed are the unseen and marginalized. Blessed are the diseased and dying for you touch the peace of God. And blessed are you, my people, when you love no matter what the cost. (laughs) Breathe deep. Put one foot in front of the other and know that I am with you always.